Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. In 1937, Robert Lloyd Proger wrote in his book, The Way That I Went, that the west coast of Ireland is furthest west, the ultima thule of all Eurasia. Not just Europe, mind you, but Europe and Asia. Thither come strange silent messengers, floating seeds and so on, from tropical lands across the ocean. Proger goes on, out beyond the sunset are legendary isles, high Brazil and the rest, and the shoals that mark the grave of the sunken land of Bus. High Brazil, along with St. Brendan's Isle and Bus, is our own particular property, lying only a few hundred miles west of Ireland and intimately concerned with maps of the early geographers and with Irish legend. Legend tells that somewhere off the coast of Ireland, there was an island, always covered with intense fog and only seen on exceedingly rare occasions. Every seven years, the fog would fade away, revealing this fabulous land. Mountains, green fields, and a glowing city were briefly visible. This Celtic land was the home of fairies, magicians, and wizards. Legends and myths of ancient Ireland contained many references to heroes who, attracted by this fantastic vision, launched into the sea in search of it. Anyone able to touch the island would achieve eternal life and a delightful paradise, but every time they approached it, the island disappeared again below the sea. Good evening, everyone. I hope you're doing well. I hope that you've enjoyed the cooler weather in the Northern Hemisphere, as I say. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure it's nice to be warming up, getting out of winter, getting to uh, start planning things like going to the beach and having barbecues. Should be great to uh, have our turn now, now that the Northern Hemisphere is heading into winter. So uh, as I say, I hope everyone's doing well. Um, I'd just like to say, first and foremost, you know, the, uh, the paranormal sun continues to grow and it's been great. We're now up to uh, having listeners in 23 countries. And one of the really interesting ones to me is that uh, Barbados, I had a listen from Barbados. So they've obviously gone in and listened to one of my Halloween specials about the moving coffins. So look, uh, that's, uh, that's a real honor to me to have the a small country that I covered that tale from, you know, go and uh, check out that episode. So if you haven't checked that out and it sounds interesting, go back and have a listen to the Moving Coffins of Barbados, my friends. I've had a lot of new listeners coming in from India, so thank you to everyone in India who's been listening. And of course, everyone from all over the world. So, you know, everyone from Europe, the UK, France, I had listeners in Romania, and, of course, listeners in South America, all over North America, all over the U.S., 33 states now. And there are definitely some states missing because I know people who have listened to some of the episodes and they haven't turned up. But uh, Anchor, my understanding is Anchor isn't the best for analytics, and that's absolutely fine. At the end of the day, gives me a rough idea. If uh, anybody is listening from a country that you think might be a bit unique, you know, get a hold of me, and I'm happy to give you a shout-out on the air. You know, I really do appreciate everyone taking their time to listen, as I say. It really helps me stay motivated, helps keep me on track, so thank you so very much. And I've got a few shout-outs to some people who have been quite supportive of the Paranormal Sun lately. So Jeff over at Badgerland Legends on Instagram. Thank you so much, Jeff. Jeff, uh, for those of you who don't know, Jeff covers a 
legend or a myth or a interesting story similar to what I do. Every day on Instagram, he does one story from somewhere in the state of Wisconsin. So, you know, I, I, look, I think it's brilliant because for those of you who may live in Wisconsin or may know somebody there, you know, go over there and check it out. And at some point in the future, you know, hopefully I can get things working and I'd love to have Jeff on the show and hear, you know, what's really got him so interested in this same subject as, as I have. Uh, and to the Paranormal Explorer TV on uh, Instagram as well. Thank you so much for the support. So this is a paranormal explorer in the UK who goes out and, uh, you know, does some paranormal exploration. Been very supportive of the program, so thank you very much. Uh, I've also been listening lately to a new podcast called the Xander and Stone Podcast, which on Instagram is the XS Podcast. And again, thank you so much for supporting the program. Thank you for listening and Thank you for having some kind words for me. I really appreciate it. And one last one here as far as that goes, and that is to Sinister C-A-N-D-C, which is the Sinister Coffee and Creamery shop in Oregon. Look, it's, it's a really cool site. You go on there and they've got different coffees with some real kind of paranormal twist in the names and that. And uh, look, folks, if I was still living in the U.S., I would definitely be giving it a try. So, you know, if you're interested, go over there and check that out. And, uh, you know, no, this isn't a commercial. No, they haven't paid me to uh, to promote their, their product. I just saw it. Uh, they followed me on Instagram, and I thought it was a real cool premise. So, you know, again, go over there and check them out. To all my listeners, as I say, all my listeners in California, the Pacific Northwest, all over America, and all over the world, Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I couldn't do it without you. To Adrian and Nico in Texas, thank you from the bottom of my heart. To Noel and Nicole over at the Quite Unusual Podcast and all my Chicagoland listeners, thank you so much for listening. To Chris and Max in Illinois, thank you from the bottom of my heart. To my Montana family, thank you for listening, of course. To the Fidianga tribe, thank you so much for listening. And last but not least, of course, to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, thank you so much for supporting the program, as you always have. And like I say, it means the world to me to have each and every one of you listen to what I have to say. So, with all that having been said, like I say, I know we're living in kind of odd and strange times. So, tonight's episode, you're going to get something a little different. I haven't covered anything quite like this so far on the program. I've covered things like this in bits and pieces. But there is a mythical island that supposedly existed off the coast of Ireland, and it was called High Brazil, or many other different pronunciations of that name. There are several. There are about 10 different ways of saying it. So anyway, we will be getting into that after a while. Now, before we get to that, of course, as always on the Paranormal Sun, each week we have the news of the damned. Now, for those of you who may be new to the program, the news of the damned is my homage to a man named Charles Fort. Charles Fort was one of the first people who really sat down and started structuring and organizing stories, newspaper clippings, and articles like that about the paranormal and the unexplained. And back in the early 1900s, Charles Fort started taking these things, putting them into books and publishing them so that you, I, and anyone else could go out and check out some of this material and see some of the interesting things going on. 
Now, Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data, thus the news of the damned. And every week I try to give you three, kind of three to five articles, depending on their length, that have got something to do with the subject matter at hand. So without further ado, we will get into the news of the damned. So the first article we've got today is from coasttocoastam.com. Those of you who are longtime listeners to the show will know that all of the articles over at coasttocoastam.com are bylined by Tim Banal, who is kind of the web guru over there. So this first one is quite interesting, folks. And this one is titled, Con Artists in India Sell Wish-Granting Lamp to Doctor for $41,600. Authorities in India have arrested a pair of con artists who convinced a doctor to buy a wish-granting lamp from them for a whopping $41,600. The, the audacious caper reportedly came to light last week when Dr. L.A. Khan contacted the police after realizing that he had been swindled. According to the doctor, the long con began when he started treating an ailing woman and, in the process, met two men whom he was led to believe were her sons. Over the course of several visits to their residence, the men slowly revealed to the doctor that they were in contact with a powerful godman who could perform all manner of magical feats. The origin of this entity, they told Khan, was the legendary Aladdin's lamp, which they just so happened to possess. In a, in a testament to their commitment to the scheme, one of the men even went so far as to dress as the famed genie and appear before the doctor to vouch for the authenticity of the tale. I didn't realize they celebrated Halloween in India, folks. There he is dressing up as the genie from Aladdin. As luck would have it, the men informed Khan they were willing to sell the magical lamp and its resident genie to him for a mere $200,000. Promised that the purchase would ultimately provide him with wealth beyond his wildest dreams, the doctor convinced the men to take a down payment of $41,600 for the prized item, which they graciously accepted. However, when they refused to let him take the lamp home with him, Khan began to suspect that something was amiss. Putting the two pieces together, it dawned on the doctor that he had been gradually brainwashed by the two men into believing that they owned a magical lamp, and that in fact, the Aladdin that he met during the, the fantastic meeting was actually one of the con artists in a genie costume. Khan subsequently reported the trickery to police, who arrested the two men for fraud and seized the lamp as evidence. The woman who initially ensnared the doctor turned out to be the wife of one of the con artists and is currently wanted by police for her for her role in the strange affair. So, folks, there, there you have it, okay? This just goes to show that just because you're college educated, I mean, this man's a doctor. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the people who go to universities and colleges have a monopoly on the brain power, all right? So I know that we all have our own beliefs, and um, I understand that some things like this, uh, you know, people want to believe. But at the end of the day, what generally trips these people up is human greed. So, you know, I'm not saying a doctor in India is a billionaire, but at the same time, you know, as a doctor, he's probably already got a decent life in India. But here he is, you know, wanting this, this uh, magic lamp so he can get rich. So uh, I do find it quite interesting. And that's, uh, I've heard a lot of con artist stories, but that's a first for me. So if you want to check that out, folks, as always with the news of the damn, I always have links in the show notes. 
so you can go over there and check it out. So you just click on the link, go over and read the article for yourself. In this case, there's a photo of the purported magic lamp, but I don't see a photo of the genie anywhere. Now, the next one here, folks, is also from Coast to Coast AM. Now, this one's quite interesting. I saw this one a while back, but I didn't get a chance to actually go in and read it. But I saw it pop up in my newsfeed a while back. This one is quite interesting, and it's got a video in it. It says, Video, Cluster of UFOs Filmed in Mexico. An intriguing video from Mexico shows a curious cluster of lights in the sky, and some suspect that they could be an armada of alien craft. The odd footage was reportedly shot at a medieval-themed housing and tourist development known as Val Curinco on the evening of October the 22nd. In the video, at least three dozen glowing orbs can be seen moving back and forth across the sky in a somewhat erratic fashion. As one might imagine, the footage has captured the attention of UFO enthusiasts who argue that the luminous objects are potentially alien in nature. Specifically, they argue that the fact that the anomalies were not all moving in the same direction would seem to preclude the usual explanations for such scenes, which is that the UFOs are just balloons or lanterns released into the air. That said, there remains one prosaic possibility put forward by skeptics, which could account for the odd lights. Drones. What's your take on the puzzling footage? So again, obviously, folks, there is a video link here that you can go in and watch. Now, I'm just going to click on it and have a look myself as I'm reading this to you because I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Well, it could be drones, but I'll tell you what, folks. If it's drones, whoever it is that's controlling those drones, um, there must be a lot of people hidden uh, somewhere controlling these drones because there are definitely, you know... 30, 40, 50 of these lights moving around. They're moving in all sorts of directions. And the first thing that comes to mind to me personally, although not exactly the same, it reminds me of, of what we've heard of the 1952 uh, or 1954. Sorry, I can't remember the exact year. I think it was 52. Washington, D.C. overflights of these UFOs that flew over Washington. And you'll see these uh, artist renditions of these white you know, objects flying against the background of the night sky. But it's quite fascinating. So, you know, by all means, go over and check that video out. Now, again, folks, I don't believe everything that I see on the Internet, but I try to provide interesting things to you. And if this later becomes, you know, gets proved to be a hoax or something, I wouldn't be shocked. The way that things are today with all of the CGI and everything else, it is getting more and more difficult to tell, you know, reality from cgi and special effects but still you know i tend to at least consider the possibility until it is proven otherwise that it could be potentially real now on to the next article folks which is another one from coast to coast am and this is quite an interesting one and this one comes from the lone star state from texas so it says Responding to reports of a giant mystery creature roaming the streets, a pair of police officers in Texas tracked down the monster, which turned out to be a man in a bizarre Halloween costume. The amusing encounter, which was captured via their body camera and subsequently posted to YouTube, occurred earlier this week in the city of Arlington. As officers Josh Zuniga and Greg Fuse were sitting in their squad car, they received word from the dispatcher that the department was being flooded with phone calls 
about an eight to nine foot tall, five-legged animal that moves like a sloth. When the officers arrived on the scene, they quickly identified the mystery creature in question as a man wearing a bizarre, homemade Halloween costume. This character's name is Psy, P-S-Y. The masked stranger nonchalantly explained to Zuniga, It's based on your psychological image of what fear is. Asked how long it took him to make the costume, the young man indicated that he created it over the course of a week for the remarkably low cost of $40. After being informed that his costume had prompted so many calls to the police, the man expressed regret over the matter and told them, I did not mean to cause a disturbance. Fortunately, the police were understanding about the mix-up and assured him that he had done nothing wrong. In fact, Zuniga was so amazed by the really, really cool costume that he had his picture taken with Sai to show the dispatchers that unknown creature that had been causing all the commotion that night. So there's a Halloween tie-in for you folks and quite an interesting little story. Um, and again, I guess this just points out that, as I say, my personal opinion is that with most, not all, but many of these type of encounters can be explained. But until they are explained, I always reserve the possibility that these things could be real. So this is quite an interesting one. Now, obviously, what somebody spots in a city in Texas versus what someone spots in the Himalayas or in Loch Ness or in the rainforest of the Pacific Northwest are completely different subjects. But anyway, I'm just saying there are a lot of things in this world that we think are odd or unexplained. And, you know, later on uh, or sometimes at the time, an explanation does come to light. So, again, folks, you know, I'm not saying that everything you hear, read or watch is 100 percent real. But as Richard C. Hoagland says, and I've quoted on this program many times, it only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. Now, the next one here, folks, is also another fascinating one from coasttocoastam.com. Now, this is a very quick one, and it's an interesting photo. Now, I've got a few listeners in Australia, I know, and this won't shock you, probably. But to the rest of us, this is quite interesting. Now, this one is titled, Cow Spotted Eating Snake in Australia. It says, a motorist cruising down a remote highway in Australia could not believe his eyes when he looked over the side of the road and spotted a cow munching on a snake. Andrew Gertz reportedly first thought that the animal was chewing on a bone until he got closer to the creature and realized it was a sand python hanging out of its mouth. The bovine's bizarre meal was so bewildering to the man that he actually stopped his car to take some pictures of the odd scene. How the cow wound up with a snake in his mouth is uncertain, though Getz speculated that perhaps some kind of unexpected altercation occurred between the two animals, which ultimately led to the non-venomous creature latched onto its tongue. Although a seasoned cattle rancher in Australia conceded that he's never seen such a thing before, Angus Emmett indicated that livestock sometimes scavenges dead animals in order to acquire proteins they may be lacking. In the case of this cow in particular, it either got the resources it needed or didn't have a taste for snake, as Gertz said that it dropped the dead reptile shortly after his unusual sighting. So, uh, yeah, folks, you know, there's that old saying that pretty much everything in Australia is trying to kill you. Now, this was apparently not a venomous snake, but nonetheless, the cow obviously wasn't going to take any chances. So, you know, it is quite interesting, and I guess it goes to show that cows are not necessarily vegetarians. They're probably more omnivores. So, again, you can check out this photo over at uh, 
the link in the show notes. Uh, but it is quite interesting. Uh, it's definitely true because I can see the photo myself. Now, the next article and the last article for tonight is part of my ongoing series on the U-196, which was a German U-boat that is purportedly on the coast here in New Zealand. Now, I've done a bit more research since the last episode, and I can't find any you know official stories of it being discovered or anything else, but it is quite interesting, folks. I have seen these radar or you know sonar underground images, and it looks like a U-boat to me, you know, or a ship. It's it's quite interesting. And again, I'm not saying it's 100% true, but nonetheless, it is quite interesting. Now, another thing I found out uh, with a bit of research is that there were other German U-boats that came in and around uh, New Zealand during World War II, albeit right at the end of the war. There were a few Japanese submarines that got quite close as well. Now, I'm telling you, folks, um, I'm a lifelong student of history. And growing up, I, you know, I had a pretty good and thorough upbringing in this stuff. And, you know, I remember them saying that, oh, you know, uh, the Japanese, aside from bombing Darwin, you know, and um, one submarine that tried to sneak into Sydney Harbor, that was it. They didn't come anywhere close to New Zealand. Well, uh, that's not true, folks, actually. And it's interesting because as I tell you, as I do the research for these programs, every time I do, man, I just learn something new. So it's just as interesting and thought-provoking for me as it is for you. So I'm going to get into part three of this story about the U-196. And just so you know, folks, after this week, there will be two more. There's a total of five in this uh, series. So now, folks, we're going to get into the very fascinating tale of the U-196. So if you've been listening to the last few episodes, I covered part one and two of this five-part article series. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and check those out. Uh, I don't want to get too far in-depth into the story again because it's quite long and complicated. But basically, just to give you a brief overview... The U-196 was a German U-boat that basically disappeared in 1944 in Southeast Asia, stopped communicating with base, and you know it was theorized that it was lost at sea. Well, the whole premise of this article is that, in fact, the U-boat turned up in New Zealand. Uh, they scuttled the U-boat, and the crew and whatever was on this U-boat was then taken ashore in New Zealand. And there's a bit of anecdotal and kind of secondhand witness type, you know, information that was provided in those first couple of articles, you know, first two parts. Anyway, I'm going to now get into part three. And it just says, author's note, while we may never find out what happened to U-196 and the missing crew, I would like to take readers on a journey which, although at first sight may read like science fiction, is indeed based on the best evidence I can find. So it says, a step through time. At the beginning of the 20th century, we saw a massive scientific interest in nuclear physics and electrical energy, fields both considered to be closely related. Einstein, among others, was, ben was beginning to formulate a view on what was to become known as the United Field Theory. Tesla, Marconi, and other scientists had been looking at radio waves and beyond. By the end of the First World War in 1918, understanding of these matters had advanced considerably. In fact, the idea of a death ray capable of killing humans or disabling machinery was being taken very seriously indeed. Uh, 
It resulted in the laser. World War II saw the introduction of radar, and from that, what we all know today is the microwave oven. But that was only the beginning of the story. By 1943, both the Allies and the Germans had begun serious research into two highly secret projects, atomic weapons and the electronic masking of large ships at sea. Both, as it turned out, require a radical rethink in previously held assumptions about the way in which the universe works and the mathematics we use to describe this. It requires the development of quantum mechanics. When the first atomic bomb of the Trinity series was detonated at the Alamogordo, New Mexico test site, no one knew exactly what was likely to happen. There was a sub sub substantial block of scientific opinion that believed it was possible to ignite the Earth's atmosphere with catastrophic consequences. Fortunately, they were proven wrong, but the scientists went ahead and did it anyway. Many readers will have heard of the Philadelphia Experiment, which involved the electronic masking of the U.S. Navy destroyer escort DE-173 USS Eldridge. The experiment involved passing a large electric current through the ship using heavy copper cables placed lengthwise around the hull, so as to reduce or remove the ability of enemy radar to obtain a reflective signal from the target ship. On October 28, 1943, according to credible eyewitness accounts, the ship simply vanished for several minutes to reappear hundreds of miles away, then just as suddenly reappear at its moorings in Philadelphia Naval Yard. The problem was it returned missing crew, and there were even reports of crewmen being embedded in the deck plating, and still alive. While the Allies didn't know at the time was that the Germans were looking for a similar solution to the same problem due to unsustainable U-boat losses in the Atlantic. Now, folks, as a very quick aside, the Philadelphia experiment, you really go down a rabbit hole when you go down that one. Nothing has been conclusively proven. And, you know, I don't want to get too far off track, but basically take that one with a grain of salt is what I'm saying. Now, I do know for a fact, for example, in World War II, the Germans had a pressure mine which was wrecking havoc on Allied shipping. And the British worked out that if you ran an electrical cable around a ship, uh, copper cable, and ran electricity through it, that you would throw off this mine's ability to pick up a ship's magnetic field. It was called degaussing. So at least that I can say there is a basis in science to what they're talking about here about this electrical current being run through the ship. So carrying on, it says ringing the bell. Since before the Second World War, Germany had been following the various scientific papers circulating among the academic community about the theoretical possibility of a sustained nuclear reaction for the generation of domestic electricity. It was not until about 1932 that theoretical physics, or sorry, theoretical physicists and mathematicians began to discover a way of achieving this. In Germany, Hermann Goering, then a leading member of the Nazi party was instructed to bury this operation in the post office budgets, where many other secret projects had been hidden. But the Germans took a very different approach to nuclear science from the Americans, British, and Russians. They looked at the metaphysical, the unseen, hidden aspects of nuclear energy. They reasoned there was much more to nuclear energy than just a large bang. German science believed that, buried within the process, making up, Sorry, folks, I'm just turning the page here. A nuclear reaction was the key to unlocking time itself. 
Even Einstein considered this more than a remote possibility, referring to it as the space-time continuum. He suspected, as did other researchers, time was possibly elastic, and depending on how fast the observer was moving, either sped up or slowed down. Igor Witkowski, a Polish journalist attempting to uncover secret Nazi nuclear experiments, claims to have been shown Polish intelligent files, intelligence files from the collapse of the Soviet communist of, sorry, from the former communist regime in 1990. From research by revolutionary German thinkers like Reich, Stern, and his understudy Gerlach at the Goethe Institute in Frankfurt am Main in the 1920s came Project Thor. They discovered a process known as the fluorescence of mercury. Under the influence of magnetic fields, this system creates a dense plasma field contained by powerful electric magnets to cause the fluorescence of mercury using photochemistry. Excited mercury ions would then cause the beryllium, a catalyst within the reaction process, to emit slow neutrons to be captured by the thorium-232, changing it into uranium-233. A variation of this method using uranium-238 could also conceivably breed plutonium for atomic weapons without the need for a nuclear reactor. It is modern alchemy. Now we can understand why so many of the monsoon boats were carrying large quantities of mercury to the Far East. Project Thor began with Heeres Verschlusslot number 10, a German army laboratory, in January 1942. The project office was originally located at Torgau, a small med medieval town in eastern Germany, but later moved west as the Russians advanced through Poland and into East Prussia during 1944. On November 2, 1944, Dr. Ernst Nagelstein, a German nuclear engineer, visited a conference in Switzerland where he disclosed to an American intelligence agent that a plant at Auer was refining thorium into metal when there was no known industrial use for thorium. He also suggested that Otto Hahn was working on an atomic bomb using either uranium or thorium. This thorium production was associated with Project Thor. From January 1944, Dr. Gerlach was directed to produce fissile uranium for the German atomic weapons program, while the Horton twins, both highly successful Luftwaffe aircraft designers, were ordered to begin their America bomber project. Documents captured by Operation ALSOS, an intelligence operation specifically designed to collect German nuclear research materials in Strasbourg, Alsace, and classified after the war, refer to the Goldschmidt papers, in which a machine used for the production of enriched uranium is described. It was a tall standing device looking like a bell-shaped Van der Graaff generator, or perhaps a Tesla coil. At the very top inside its spherical head was a spinning device. In the margin are notes claiming it generated 5 million electron volts. The importance of this device was that, unlike the Allied nuclear program, requiring a reactor to produce the materials necessary to create a nuclear weapon, this German system didn't. Nor did it remain dangerously radioactive after use, and it could be disassembled and moved by U-boat. But when working, it was extremely dangerous to humans in close proximity. One report claims a technician literally melted before the horrified onlookers after he got too close to the operating machine. A similar phenomenon was, was observed aboard the USS Eldridge. An unexpected bonus. During the operation of this centrifugal machine, it was discovered to produce a very small anti-gravitational effect. This effect was sufficiently pronounced 
to be as recorded by the relatively primitive measuring devices of the period. What we do know is the original site of the centrifuge contains a substantial reinforced concrete frame later researchers have estimated to be capable of withstanding at least 100 tons of vertical force. They believe it to be a gigantic docking point. By the time the Germans began to explore this unexpected effect, the war was almost over. But those in charge of the project would not have been prepared to hand their discovery over to the Russians. Once the centrifuge had been disassembled, it would have been almost impossible to re rebuild and operate it without expert guidance from the original Project Thor team. Like the V-2 rocket teams from Pinamunda, the Allies would be in a bidding war for such information. So why would it have been brought to Northland? The centrifuge unit could have been operated in a dry shed anywhere in the world, provided there was sufficient power to run it. It was the anti-gravity effects that could not have been so easily contained or hidden. The U-196, evacuated from North Korea with its cargo of documents, nuclear material, and the centrifugal plans, needed a remote, safe location in which to re-establish Project Thor. Northland was the perfect choice. New Zealand also had the necessary infrastructure to produce the high-grade ceramics and engineering skills to make the centrifuge. Following the Japanese surrender in August 1945, the Americans immediately ceased all nuclear cooperation with Britain. Fearing the research team based at Cambridge University in England was leaking information to the Russians via Peter Kapitsa, a former colleague of Ernst Rutherford, who had headed the project team. Kapitsa had been at Mond Temperature Laboratory before the war, but had returned to Moscow in 1934 at the insistence of Stalin. The Americans had suspected a number of leaks from the Manhattan Project, which proved to be correct. In fact, Stalin was well informed about the state of the Manhattan Project from the time it was established. Naturally, this rupture and the exchange of Allied nuclear information caused a major rift between the two governments. The British immediately began an independent nuclear program based on breeder reactors, which did not require the same replenishment of uranium-235 as the American systems did. Just as importantly, U-196 was in the area controlled by the British at the end of the war. If Admiral Donitz was going to offer German nuclear research to anyone, it was likely to have been the British. Why? Because he could be confident the Germans would remain a partner in British nuclear research and ultimately obtain their own nuclear weapon. It's a fair bet the British, faced with the cost of a nuclear program, offered to share their project with Germany and France in exchange for splitting the costs. Even though Germany was not permitted nuclear weapons on her own soil, there was nothing to prevent jointly owned nuclear weapons being stored on French bases along the Rhine. But before any of this could be achieved, there needed to be a secret enrichment facility. Who would believe little old backwoods New Zealand could have had such a thing? But if the five German bodies discovered in Northland after the war are anything to go by, there's much more to this story than we have been told to date. Of even greater interest is the fact that officially these deaths never occurred. Now, folks, that is very interesting to me. I will say one thing. Look, I keep an open mind, and these sorts of stories fascinate me. But one thing that we do have to be very careful of is that oftentimes you'll come across stories like this, and they weave facts in with postulation or even downright fiction, you know, when they kind of spin their tail. So it, it has an air of authenticity. Now, I'm not saying it's all BS, okay? I've read a lot of this about different things. The problem with anything like this 
ex-Germans, ex-World War II, German Wunderwaffe, uh, a Nazi nuclear program, all of it is – it's a very deep rabbit hole and there's very little proof of many of these claims. Now, I happen to know as much as just about every other kind of layman, you know, that's not an actual researcher on some of this stuff they're discussing. So the centrifuge they're discussing is what has been referred to by Joseph P. Farrell and some other great writers as the Nazi bell. This gentleman from Poland, Igor Witkowski, he's the one who first translated these documents at the end of the Cold War. He got his hands on these documents that, you know, purportedly talk about this interrogation of a uh, SS officer and him spilling the beans about this, uh, you know, this bell object, which in German is called die Glocke, which is, you know, the bell in German. So anyway, I'm not saying that any of this is impossible. All I'm saying is, folks, this is getting pretty far into the conspiracy realm. And again, I find it fascinating. I would not be overly shocked if some of the claims that I've laid out so far eventually ended up being found out to be true. I will say that at the end of World War II, uh, when the Allies went into Germany, they only found a very poor uh, kind of research reactor. They, the Germans had not created a full-blown nuclear reactor. And the story that we've always been told is that, oh, well, the Germans just worked out that the atomic bomb was too hard to, uh, you know, produce, and therefore they stopped really funding it. Well, folks, if you do a bit more research and you just scratch a bit more belief beneath the surface, there is a lot more to it than meets the eye. Are there photos of Nazi mushroom clouds? No, but there are firsthand accounts of pilots seeing things in Germany near the end of the war that are potentially nuclear tests. So anyway, it's a fascinating story. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Thank you for bearing with me, folks. And, you know, there's a couple more parts on this article. I don't want to stop now because I've already done three out of five. But, yeah, look, I do understand that this is, you know, it's a bit astonishing to some people. And, you know, like I say, the problem with stories like this, they're fascinating, but there's not always a whole lot of proof to back them up. But I am very interested to hear about those five German bodies that they're talking about because Northland, New Zealand is a very – lightly populated area and pretty much everyone up there knows everyone. I spent quite a bit of time up there and it will be quite interesting to get into that section. Now folks, before I get into the tale of High Brazil, one thing I just want to apologize for in advance. Again, I always try and do my best here on the Paranormal Sun to pronounce place names and language as best as I can. Now I've got a fair inkling of Gaelic, but it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. So any of my Irish listeners or anyone out there who speaks Gaelic, please be kind with your comments. I've done my best, you know, to pronounce these names correctly. I'm happy to make any corrections on air if you send me, you know, things that I've missed. So thanks again for that. And now into the main topic.
In Traces of the Elder Face of Ireland, a folklore sketch from 1902, W.G. Woodmartin has a section dealing with phantom lands. One of those phantom lands is the fabled island of High Brazil, said to be located in the Atlantic Ocean, west or southwest of Ireland. It was once marked on medieval maps, but no such island exists today. Woodmartin tells us that in the 17th century, Roderick O'Flaherty said that the phantom island of High Brazil, marked on many old charts near the west coast of Ireland, was, in his time, often visible. The subject has inspired several poets with beautiful fancies, which have been woven into poetic ballads. Gerald Griffin descri describes it thusly, On the ocean that hollows the rocks where ye dwell, a shadowy land has appeared as they tell. Men thought it a region of sunshine and rest, and they called it High Brazil, the Isle of the Blessed. From year unto year, unto the ocean's blue rim, the beautiful specter showed lovely and dim. The golden clouds curtained the deep where it lay, and it looked like an Eden, far, far away. High Brazil, also known as High Brazil, High Brazil, High Brazil, and High Brazil, is believed to be derived from the name Brazil, meaning the High King of the World in Celtic history. It was noted on maps as early as 1325 by the Gionese cartographer Angelino Dulcert, where it was identified as Brazil. It later appeared in the Catalan Atlas in 1375, which placed it as two separate islands with the same name, Ila de Brazil. As the story goes, High Brazil is a mysterious island that exists off the west coast. According to legend, the island is forever blanketed in a thick fog and invisible to the naked eye from the mainland or from the high seas. One day every seven years, however, the fog is said to subside and present this Eden that exists in the North Atlantic Ocean. Even then, however, legend tells that the island is impossible to reach. It is supposedly home to a sophisticated culture who had gold-roofed, dome-shaped buildings. According to these stories, the island remains hidden most of the time. It is either invisible, obscured by heavy fog, or descends beneath the ocean. It was believed to be the place of plenty and happiness, located somewhere to the west. According to Celtic tradition, country o Brazil lay roughly where the sun touched the horizon or immediately on its other side. On most maps, the island was located roughly 320 kilometers or 200 miles off the west coast of Ireland in the North Atlantic Ocean. One of the most distinctive geographical features of High Brazil on those maps is that it often appears as a circle with a channel or river running east to west across the middle of it. The existence of a land which would restore the aged to full vigor of youth was of worldwide belief, but all attempts to discover this land necessarily ended in disappointment. Nevertheless, the strange spirit of adventure thus engendered laid open to wide countries which might otherwise have remained for centuries unknown. A country of indefinite magnitude called Brazil is marked on maps made even before the time of Columbus. It is represented south of another island which, it is thought, represents the supposed position of the Scandinavian settlements of Vinland. For although we designate the American continent the New World, it was apparently known to those ancient rovers of the sea. And we all know, folks, we've all heard these tales of Vikings discovering the New World. So it is, again, it's another tie-in with the Vikings and history not being as we have been told. Belief in the existence of High Brazil doubtlessly gave rise to the traditional transatlantic voyage of St. Brendan, an adventurous ecclesiastic styled the Navigator, 
who spent seven years away from Ireland on a distant island. St. Brendan has been styled the Sinbad of clerical romance and has so firm a hold in men's minds had the exploits of this Christian Ulysses at one time acquired that islands, supposed to have been discovered by him, became subjects of treaty. His purported journeys have been roughly dated to about A.D. 512 to A.D. 530. Some think that St. Brendan's famous voyage to find the Promised Land may have been High Brazil. It is not improbable that, at a later period, his adventures stimulated navigators to attempt discoveries across the Western Ocean. St. Brendan sailed about on a huge rock, which he finally abandoned on the coast of Donegal. St. Declan's Rock may still be seen on the strand in Ardmore Bay. This boat is computed to weigh about three tons. It navigated itself on the surface of the sea, from Rome, carrying by way of cargo nine bells, and the curious ship reached land with its load most opportunely, just as St. Declan himself was in dire want of a bell to celebrate Mass. The legend goes back much further, however, probably into pre-Christian times, appearing first in the 7th century in the Irish text known as The Adventure of Bran, Son of Fibal, which tells of Bran's visit to the other world island supported on pillars of gold, where games were played, people are always happy, there is no sorrow or sickness, and music is always to be heard. Truly a land of the blessed. Sounds a lot like uh, the land of the West, you know, where the elves sail into in um, the Lord of the Rings movies, folks. The voyage of Bran, son of Fribal, in this ancient Celtic story that is derived from mythology and written in the 8th century, the protagonist Bran visits a mysterious fair isle where there was a Sylvian young gleam in people's eyes and nobody ever got old or became unhappy. There are thrice fifty distant isles in the ocean to the west of us, larger than Aaron twice, is each one of them or thrice. Rurari O'Flaherty mentions the appearance in 1161 of Fantastical ships in the harbor of Galway, sailing against the wind. And Hardiman, editor of the above work, remembered having seen a well-defined aerial phenomena of the same kind from a hill near Croc Patrick in Mayo on a serene evening in the autumn of 1798. Hundreds who also witnessed the scene looked upon it as supernatural, but some afterwards it was ascertained that the illusion had been produced by the reflection of the fleet of Admiral Warren, which was then in pursuit of a French squadron off the west coast of Ireland. In like manner, may not the optical illusion noted in the Irish annals as occurring in the year 1161 in the harbour of Galway have been produced by the reflection of a distant fleet of northern war galleys? It's possible, folks, and we'll get into that when we get into the possible explanations for High Brazil. A record of the island first appeared on an early map in 1325, as I've, as I've stated before, by the Genoese cartographer Angelino Dulcert. In, this, in, in his 1339 map, which was also published under the name of Dulcert, Dolarto represented High Brazil as having a strikingly round form, often divided by a channel. Its lands were said to house an immortal race of people. By 1375, the Insula de Brazil was placed at two sites in the Catalan Atlas, one west of Ireland and the other to the south. Yet by 1480, one of the two islands, both labeled Ila de Brazil, had shifted to just south of Greenland, while the other remained near Ireland. So as I was saying, you know, some of these cartographers started saying one of these islands was actually Vinland. In 1436, it showed up as Sola de Brazil in the Venetian map of cartographer Andrea Bianco, 
attached to one of the larger islands of a group in the Atlantic. This was identified for a time with Mater Island. It would show up again in 1595 on the Ortilius map of Europe and Europa Mercator map and occasionally show up in slightly different locations on different maps over the years. In 1480, John Jay Jr. departed from Bristol, England on a journey to find the fabled island, only to come back empty-handed after spending two months at sea. In 1481, two more ships, the Trinity and the George, departed from Bristol on an expedition to find High Brazil with no success either. Also in 1480, John Cabot also launched an expedition to search for Brazil and repeated the effort apparently every year from 1490 to 1497, although no definitive proof that Cabot's expeditions reached the island exists. Interestingly enough, in 1497, Spanish diplomat Pedro de Ayala reported to the Catholic monarchs of Spain that John Cabot, the first European to visit North America since the Vikings, had discovered in the past by the men from Bristol who found Brazil. This implied someone from one of the Bristol expeditions had actually managed to find High Brazil. So on the 25th of July, 1498, Pedro de Ayala, who was the Spanish envoy in London, wrote to Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain, reporting the British efforts in searching for High Brazil or the island of Brazil. Now these are his words. For the last seven years, the people of Bristol have equipped two, three, and four caravels to go in search of the island of Brazil and the seven cities according to the fancy of this, of this Genoese. The king made up his mind to send thither, because last year, sure proof was brought. They had found land. Many other attempts were made to discover the fabled island. Leslie of Glaslau, described as a wise man and a great scholar, was so imbued with belief in its real existence that he solicited a grant for the isle from Charles I. Edmund Ludlow, the celebrated Republican, escaped to the continent in a vessel chartered at Limerick to sail in search of High Brazil, and so formed in people's minds at that time that the island actually existed, the captain of the ship was allowed to depart unquestioned. So basically, this man was a Republican, so he was basically a... He, he, he was a political, you know person who had a problem with the king and he decided to leave Ireland and their excuse to leave port because everyone was being questioned who was leaving was that they were going to look for high Brazil and they were that sure that it existed they let him leave so you know that's quite a fascinating one there folks that's how certain the people in Ireland and the UK at the time were that these islands actually existed a rare work entitled La Navigation e Indie Oriental printed at Amsterdam in the year 1609 contains a map on which two islands, styled Brazil and Brandon, are marked as actually existing off the Irish coast. A chart of the French geographer Royale, made in the year 1634, also includes the island of High Brazil, is also distinctly marked on his map. Others reportedly reached the island. In the 17th century, a man named Ole claimed to have been kidnapped and taken to High Brazil. And there'll be more on Ole later in this episode, folks. And that's O, apostrophe, Lay. So it's an Irish name, not Ole like the Spanish term. In 1675, a pamphlet began making the rounds in London, purporting to recount the tale the year before of the long-sought and legendary island. On the 2nd of March, 1674, a Captain Nesbitt claimed to have discovered, disenchanted, and actually landed on High Brazil. 
which he also partially explored. The, dis the disenchantment was affected by lighting a fire upon it. Since then, says the writer, several godly ministers and others have gone to visit and discover them, i.e. the inhabitants. But as the author had heard no news of their return, he says he awaits with becoming patience further particulars. We are left in ignorance as to whether these were ever given. But from a silence of upwards of two centuries, the probability is that the disenchantment wrought on the lighting of the fire was but temporary, that the godly ministers and others have met with the fate of a Sinian of old. But doubtless, when the day of their release arrives, we shall hear of strange discoveries. The pamphlet, purporting to give an account of the discovery of High Brazil, obtained a good circulation in London over the course of 1675. The details of the journey of the Scottish sea captain made even more intriguing reading. He claimed to have spotted High Brazil on his voyage from France to Ireland in 1674. They encountered a strange fog, and when the fog lifted, the ship was dangerously close to rocks. While getting their bearings, the ship anchored in three fathoms of water. And that's about 18 feet or 3 meters, folks, so shallow water for a large ship. And four crew members rowed ashore to visit High Brazil. He is said to have sent a party of four ashore, where the sailors spent the entire day on the island. There they claimed to have met a wise old man who provided them with gold and silver. Strangely, the captain said the island was uninhabited, or sorry, was inhabited by large black rabbits and a mysterious magician who lived in a large stone castle by himself. A follow-up expedition was led by Captain Alexander Johnson, who also claimed to have found High Brazil, confirming Nisbet's findings. In 1684, Rory O'Flaherty claimed in his publication, o Ogigia, to have met a man, Moro Olayo, who said he had been abducted by strangers and ferried across to High Brazil, where he was held for two days, during which he became ill. When he recovered, he found himself mysteriously returned to Irish shores. He also states that, from the Isles of Arran and the West Continent, often appears visible that enchanted island called O Brazil, and an Irish Begara, or the Lesser Arran, set down in cards of navigation. Whether it be real and firm land, kept hidden by special ordinance of God, as the terrestrial paradise, or else some illusion of airy clouds appearing on the surface of the sea, or the craft of evil spirits, is more than our judgments can sound out. Even into the Industrial Age, High Brazil was included on maps and charts. Apparently, and according to some researchers, it appeared in a 1776 map as a rock six degrees west of the southern point of Ireland. The Reverend Luke Connolly, writing in 1816, states that he received minute descriptions of extraordinary Fata Morgana, which is a mirage in English, which appeared along the seacoast near the Giant's Causeway. From those who saw beautiful illusions on various summer evenings, shadows resembling castles, ruins, and tall spires darted rapidly across the surface of the sea, which were instantly succeeded by appearances of trees lengthened into considerable height. These shadows moved to the eastern part of the horizon, and at sunset totally disappeared. These phenomena were given rise to various romantic stories. A book still extant, printed in 1748, and written by a person who resided near the Giant's Causeway, gives a long account of an enchanted island, annually seen floating along the county of Antrim coast, where he fancifully calls the Old Brazils. It is supposed by the peasants that a sod from the Irish terra firma thrown onto the island would give it stability. 
but those several fishing boats have gone out at different times provided with this article, it has hitherto eluded their vigilance. So this gentleman in his book states that there was a witness that actually would see these islands floating past, you know, so they weren't uh, stone islands, obviously, they were, they were floating islands, which is yet another wrinkle to this story. In the following years, High Brazil would retreat into anonymity. As attempts to find it failed again, mapmakers started leaving it off most nautical charts. When it was last observed on a map in 1865, it was simply noted as Brazil Rock. By this time, after so many failed attempts to reach the island, most cartographers had chosen to stop featuring it. The last documented sighting of High Brazil was made in 1872 by Robert O'Flaherty and T.J. Westrop. Westrop, an accomplished antiquarian, folklorist, and archaeologist, claimed to have visited the island on three previous occasions and was so captivated by it that he brought his family with him to see it in person. There they all witnessed it appear out of nowhere, only to see it vanish again before their very eyes. Now, folks, I've got another tale from 1878. Uh, and I've got, I found this book online, and it's quite a fascinating book. I'll be using it to cover over some further Irish myths and legends in future. Now, this book is called Irish Wonders, and it was from 1888. And there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to go and find it itself. It's uh, quite a rare book, and it's in the Irish National Library. So now, folks, I'm going to read to you in its entirety this story from the book. And it's called The Enchanted Island. It says, On the afternoon of Sunday, July 7, 1878, the inhabitants of Ballycotton, County Cork, were greatly excited by the sudden appearance, far out at sea, of an island where none was known to exist. The men of the town and the island of Ballycotton were fishermen and knew the sea as well as they knew the land. The day before, they had been out in their boats and sailed over the spot where the strange island now appeared, and were certain that the locality was the best fishing ground they had. And still they gazed, and still the wonder grew, for the day was clear and the island could be seen as plainly as they saw the hills to the north. It was rugged, and some parts rocky, and others densely wooded. Here and there were deep shadows in its sides, indicating glens heavily covered with undergrowth and grasses. At one end it rose almost precipitously from the sea. At the other, the declivity was gradual. The thick forest of the mountainous portion was gave way to smaller trees, these to shrubs, these to green meadows, that finally melted into the sea and became indistinguishable from the waves. Under sail and oar, a hundred boats put off from the shore to investigate. When, as they neared the spot, the strange island became dim in outline, less vivid in color, and at last vanished entirely, leaving the wonder-stricken villagers to return, fully convinced that for the first time in their lives they had really seen the enchanted island. For one, there was a topic of conversation that would outlast the day, and as the story of the enchanted island passed from lip to lip, both story and island grew in size till the matter was till the latter was little less than a continent, containing cities and castles, palaces and cathedrals, towers and steeples, stupendous mountain ranges, fertile valleys, and wide-spreading plains. While the former was limited only by the patience of the listener and embraced the personal experience, conclusions, reflections, and observations of every man, woman, and child in the parish who had been fortunate enough to see the island, hear of it, or tell where it has been seen elsewhere. 
or the enchanted island of the west coast is not one of those ordinary humdrum islands that raise out of the sea in a night, and then having come, settle down to business on scientific principles, and devote their attention to the collection of soil for the use of plants and animals. It disdains any such commonplace course as other islands are content to follow, but is peripatetic, or more properly seafaring in its habits, and is fond of traveling as a sailor. At its own sweet will it comes, and having shown itself long enough to convince everybody who is not an innocent entirely of its reality, it goes without leave-taking or ceremony, and always before boats can approach near enough to make a careful inspection. This is the invariable history of its appearance. No one has ever been able to come close to its shores, much less land upon them, but it has been so often seen on the west coast that a doubt of its existence, if expressed in the company of the coast fishermen, will at once establish for the skeptic a reputation for ignorance of the common affairs of everyday life. In Cork, for instance, it has been seen by hundreds of people off of Valley Dongan Bay, which may more, well, many more can testify to its appearance off the Bay of Curtin Mishery in Kerry. All the population of Ballyhee saw it a few years ago, lying in, in the Trolley Bay between Kerry Head and Brandon's Head, and shortly before the villagers of Lennis Kibri, just across the bay from Ballyhee, saw it between the shores and Kerry Head, while the fishermen in St. Finnan's Bay and in Ballinskelligs are confident it has been seen, if not by themselves, at least by some of their friends. It has appeared at the mouth of the Shannon and off Kerry Holt in Clare, where the people saw a city on it. This is not so remarkable as it seems for injustice to the Enchanted Island, it should be stated that its resemblance to, to portions of the neighboring land is sometimes very close, and shows that the enchanter who has it under a spell knows his business, and being determined to keep his islands for himself, changes its appearance as well as its location, in order that his property may not be recognized nor appropriated. In Galway, the Enchanted Isle has appeared in the mouth of the Bally, uh, Ballin, Ballinlame Bay, a local landlord at the time making a devout wish that it would stay there. The fishermen of Ballinaskill in the Joyce country saw it about 15 years ago, since when it appeared to the Inishark Islanders. The county Mayo has seen it, not only from the Achiel Island cliffs, but also from Downpatrick Head, and in Sligo, the fishermen of Ballydare Bay know all about it. While half the populations of Inishcrone still remember its appearance, about 20 years ago, the Inishboffin Islanders in Donegal say it looked like their own island. Sure, two twins couldn't be like her. And the people of Gwynbara Bay, when it appeared there, observed along the shores of the island a village like Moss, the one in which they lived. It has been appeared off Rathlin's Island on the Antrim coast, but so far as could be learned, it went no further to the east, confining its migrations to the west coast between Cork on the south and Antrim on the north. Concerning the island itself, legendary authorities differ on many material points. Some, some hold it to be a rail island, sure enough, and that its exploits are due to geometry or some other enchantment. While opponents of this materialistic view are inclined to the opinion that the isle is not what it seems to be, that is to say, not earth and stones, like as them we see, but only a deliberate show where elvil spirits or the devil be like makes fur to deceive us poor dishonest craters. So sorry folks, you know obviously this book is written in quite antiquated terms.
but they're basically saying that some people say that this is a real, you know, earth and stone island, and others say that it's an illusion or something to do with the devil or spirits. Public opinion on the West Coast is therefore strongly divided on the subject. Unity of sen sentiment existing on two points only, that the island has been seen and that there is something quite out of the ordinary in its appearance. For you see, Your Honor, observed a Kerry fisherman, it's again not your fur a uh, real island to be coming and going like a light in a bog. And when ye do see it, ye can see through it. And by jiggers, if it's a true island, a mighty queer one, and make no mistake. So he's basically saying he he thinks it's almost translucent and he can see through it. So he's saying if it is a real island, it's quite odd. On so deep and difficult a subject, an ounce of knowledge is worth a pound of speculation, and the knowledge desired was finally furnished by an old fisherman of Bellinacoli Bay on the Connemara coast west of Galway. This individual, Dennis Moriarty by name, knew all about the Enchanted Isle, having not only seen it himself, but when he was a boy, learned its history from a ferryman. And when he says ferryman, he doesn't mean a, a ship's ferry. He means a ferryman as in a, an enchanted being, who obtained this information from the good people themselves. And the good people in Irish mythology is the leprechauns. The facts stated being, therefore, of course, of undisputable authority, that the fairies did not know concerning the doings of supernatural and enchanted circles being not worth knowing. Mr. Moriarty was stricken in years, having long given up active service in the boats and relegated himself to lighter duties on shore. He had much confidence in the accuracy of his information on the subject of the island, and a glass of grog and a draw of the pipe brought out the story in rich, mellow brogue. Faith, I'm not righty sure how long ago it was, but it was a good while, and before the blessed St. Patrick came to the country and made christens of the heathens in it. Howdever, it was in them times that between this and Irish moor there was an island. Some calls it the Island of Shades, and more says it was the soul's repose. But it doesn't matter, for, for no one knows. It was as full of people as could hold, and cities were on it with palaces and courts and heathen temples and round towers all covered with gold and silver till they shone so you couldn't see for the brightness. And they were all heathens there, and the king of the island was the biggest of them. Sure he was Satan's own and took delight in doing all the bloody things that come into his head. If the weather that minded the table did anything to displease him, he'd outwit a cord and length of Aram and cut off his head. If they caught a man stalin, the king would have him hung and wouldst without taste of trail. The case against the king, says he, maybe he didn't do it at all, and so he'd get off and up with him. And so they do, he'd had more than a hundred wives, generally speaking, but he wasn't troubled in the least by their clack, for when we had too much blast dog in their jaw, or begun gossiping to him, he'd cut off her head and said, be ways have a joke, and that's the only cure for a woman's tongue. And all the time, from sun to sun, he was cursing and howling with rage. So as I'm sure, Your Honor, wouldn't, wouldn't want for to hear me say him blasphemies that he said. To spake the truth of him, he was wicked in the degary that, axing your pardon, the old devil himself wouldn't own him. So one time, there was a thunder and at the king's family. 
So what he's saying here, folks, um, is that there was a king that was in charge of this island and he was really evil. You know, he treated people poorly. He had a lot of wives. And if one of his wives, he started getting tired of them or if they spoke out against him, he'd, he'd cut their head off. He'd cut off the heads of the waiters. So, you know, look, a real charming gentleman, you know, makes Vlad the Impaler look like, uh, you know, pretty timid by comparison. So uh, I'll carry on here. So one time there was a thunder and falu in the king's family. For mind ye, ye had then just a hundred wives. Now it's my consulate that it's easier for a hundred cats to spend the night in a pace on the one thatch than two women to draw whether have the same well without one eland. So what he's saying is he thinks that it's it's easier to have a hundred cats put up with each other in a small space than have two women um, fighting over the same husband. The other one was all names she can get out of her head. But when ye've a hundred of them and more than a towns and young ones, big and little, and easy to see why the king of Ireland played plenty of use for the big sword that he always kept handy to settle family disputes with. So be the time he, he now, I'm telling ye, have over and women stopped talking. The king was a witty man just ten times and had only ninety wives left. So he's basically saying that, you know, the king had good use of using his swords because every time one of his wives would say something smart or whatever, he'd just cut their head off. So he's saying that he started out with 100 and pretty soon he only had 90. So he says to himself, bedad, I must ray out the force again to them that's left all think I can't do without them. And then there'll be no end to the impudence. Begora, this Marion is a serious business, says he, sighing. For he'd got about all the women that he wanted to be queens and didn't know where to find any more. But he picked up one here and there, and after a bit he got 99 and then could get no more. And in spite of sending men to every corner of Ireland and telling the king's deathers everywhere how lonesome he was and how the court was going to rack and ruin entirely for the want of another queen, the mind, the panthery, saw a woman you'd have in all Ireland to come, for they'd all heard of the nightmares he took to Cape Peace and his family. So basically he's saying that he managed to find nine more wives. He couldn't find any more. He couldn't find any women that would want to go there because they'd all heard about him, you know, cutting off the heads of all of his previous wives. So again, if you think Henry VIII uh, was, you know, considered a bit of a, a, a you know, a, a, an adulterer and uh, uh, someone who, you know, married willy-nilly. Well, this guy's really got him by the, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely out in front of him. But after thriving everywhere else, he sent a man into the Joyce country to a mighty fine princess of the Joyces. She didn't want to go at first, but the inducements in wore, so she couldn't hold out. For the king sent her presents without end and said if she'd marry him, he'd give her all the diamonds she could get on a donkey's back. Now, over beyond the twelve pins in the Joyce country, there was a great enchanter that had all kinds of servants and knew where you dig for a pot of gold and all about doctoring, uh, doctoring and could turn ye into a pig in a minute and build a castle in one night and make himself disappear when he wanted and take any shape he pleased so as to look to be a, a base when he wasn't and a mighty dapper man entirely. Now to him went the princess and asked him what to do, and she did not care a trinity for the king. 
but he'd give the two eyes out of her head to get the diamonds. The enchanter heard what had to say and then told her, Now, my dear, you marry the old fella and have no fear. For av he dares to touch a hair on your golden locks, I'll take care of you and have him too. So he give her a charm and she was to say within, say when she wanted to come and another one to repeat when she was in mortal danger and told her fur to go and get married and get the diamonds as quick as she could. And that she did. And a forest the king was mightily pleased of getting her because he was she was hard to get and gave her the diamonds and all she wanted. And she got on very well and took care of the pantry and helped the other wives around the court. So, folks, this is written in... It, it's it's basically written phonetically, so it's written how it sounds. So I do apologize of, you know, a bit of the stuttering and stopping. But basically what it's saying here is that this woman, of course, wanted nothing to do with this king. But, you know, this enchanter and her kind of worked out a plan that, you know, he said, you go there and you get all the diamonds and riches that you can carry. And then here, I'll give you this pendant. And when you want to come back, you basically use this pendant. And you'll be safe to come back. So there's basically no way he can kill you. And we'll both get rich from it. One day the king got up out of the golden bed he slept in with a terrible sulk in him. And in a state of mind entirely, for the wind was in Aston and he had the rheumatism in his back. So he cursed and swore like a Turk. And when the waiter asked him to come to his breakfast, he kicked him into the yard of the court and went in without him and sat down by the table. So one of the queens brought him his bowl of stirabout, and then he found fault with it. It's burned, said he, and threw it at her. Then Queen Peggy Joyce, that, that's the one that was going to try and get the diamonds, that hadna seen the temper that was at him, came in from the pantry with a smile on her face and a big noggin of milk in her hand. So a noggin's like a big jug. Good morning to ye, she says to him, but the old vagabond didn't spake a word. Good morrow, he, he says him again, and then he broke out with a fury. Hold your peace, you, you palavering strap. Do you think I'll be deafened with your tongue? Set the noggin on the table and be walking off with yourself, or I'll make ye sorry ye come, says he. It was the first time he ever spake like that to her, and the Irish blood of her riz, and in a minute she was as mad as a grander and, a bold, and as bold as a lion. Well, I can tell you, folks, my Irish blood's that way. So she didn't like being spoke that way, and she got a really hot temper about it. Don't you dare spake that away to me, sir, says she to him. I'll have you know I won't take a word of your impudence. Me fathers wore crowns ages before your you bog-throttling grandfather come to this island, and everyone knows he was the first of his dirty tribe that had shoes on his feet. And she walked straight up to him and folded her arms and looked into his face, as impudent as a magpie. Don't think for you'll bully me, she says. I come of a race that never owned a coward, and I wouldn't give that for you and all the big swords you could carry, says she, giving her fingers a snap right at the end of his nose. Now the old heathen never had any one to spake like that to him, and at first that was that surprised him like a horse had begun fur to converse at him. No more could he say a word, he was that full of rage and sat there opening and shutting his mouth and swelling up like he burst as his face was red as a turkey cock's. Then he remembered his sword and pulled it out 
and stretched out his hand for to catch the queen and cut off her head. But she was too quick for him entirely. And when she had the sword raised, she said the charm that was to protect her. And after she, ye, ye could think, there the blood suck in old villain, mortified to stone with his arum raised and his hand reached out and as stiff as a mast. Then she said the other charm that called the enchanter and he come to wanst. She told him what she'd done and he said it was right of her. And as she had a pretty smart woman, he said he'd marry her himself. So he, so basically this king, when she spoke to him that way, he was incensed. He'd never had anyone talk to him like that. So, you know, basically after a, a few seconds of him gathering his composure because he was just getting angrier and angrier, he remembered he had his sword. So he went to pull out the sword and cut her head off, and she pulled out that charm that would protect her, and that charm turned him into stone. And then she pulled out the other charm, and the enchanter came. She told him what had happened, and he said, well, you didn't do anything wrong. And he said, well, you know, since, since you're a pretty smart woman, I'll marry you myself. The island was cursed by raisin of the king's crimes and come to Ireland with all the people. So they come to Connemara, and the enchanter got husbands for all the king's wives and homes for all the men of the island. But he enchanted the island and made it so that the bad king must live in it alone as long as the sun rises and sets. No more does the island stand still, but must travel up and down the coast. And one seven years they see it and carry, and, and next seven years in Donegal, and so it goes, and always will be ways of a caution to kings not to cut off the heads of their wives. So basically, this is the, um, you know, this is a, a bit of your urban legend background to why these people see this island that moves up and down the coast. Uh, it's basically that this enchanter at the end of the story cursed the island and left the king on the island as this statue. And this island would move up and down the coast and only be seen by these people in different cities every seven years. So look, folks, I'd never heard that tale. Uh, again, apologies for the language. I understand it's a probably a bit difficult to hear your way through that. But look, a fascinating tale nonetheless. And oftentimes, as I say, with these kind of tales that you find in old books, you won't hear them anywhere else. Another correspondent writes, I myself, upwards of half a century ago, saw a wonderful mirage resembling that lately described as having been visible off our Tira coast, County Sligo. And had I been looking on the bay for the first time, nothing could have persuaded me but that I was gazing at a veritable city, a large and handsome one too. Trees, houses, spires, castellated buildings, etc. The enchanted island of High Brazil was again seen off the coast of Sligo in the year of 1885. The vision forebodes, so it is alleged, national trouble. Now a few decades ago, a member of another family saw it clearly from around Bellinacoli in the, in the 1940s. While there is a possibility that this island did exist some centuries ago, when the sea levels were much lower, others dispute that it ever existed, allocating its origins to that of a tall tale. In one of the UK's most famous UFO encounters, known as the Rendlesham Forest Incident, a strange craft was reported to have landed outside a US military base in the UK. Sergeant Jim Penniston claims to have touched this craft and telepathically received 16 pages of binary code into his mind which he referred to as a download. He wrote down the code the next day. However, he had no way to know what it meant, but he did keep the notebook for more than two decades. This code was much later run through sophisticated computer software 
and deciphered to be a list of very specific coordinates to certain spots on Earth. The code was said to list very specific coordinates of High Brazil and listed the location where ancient cartographers had it mapped. The message also listed the coordinates of several other ancient sites around the world, such as the pyramids at Giza and the Nazca Lines. At the very bottom of the message, coordinates of High Brazil were listed, again, along with an origin year of 8100. As David Wilcox said on Behind the Paranormal, radio interview he did with guests Jim Penniston and John Burroughs, the written legend says that people lived on this island, High Brazil, who considered everyone else on the mainland, which is Europe, to be savages and primi primitives, and apparently they had very advanced technology, including levitation and advanced forms of sound healing, and they were ultimately forced to migrate away from their island by the rising floodwaters of the Ice Age, where you have like a 150 to 300 foot rise in sea level in a really short time. When they got to Europe, they actually became the builders of the stone circles and the standing stone-like megaliths and menhirs and so forth. Basically, the people of High Brazil migrated to Europe, and you can then trace them through the gods of Irish mythology, the gods of Celtic mythology, and the gods of Norse mythology. So these are some very, very heavy players here. It's not just another UFO story. It connects to everything. And if you go through many of these ancient mythologies, including Irish, Celtic, and Norse, which is allegedly where they got this from, and was the people of High Brazil originally, that myth talks about the ending of a, of a great year, and the great year in this case is 25,920 years long, and it's the big 2012 thing. So my supposition is that the planetary advance they are speaking of is this alleged golden age. Today, no such island called High Brazil exists on any maps or nautical charts, and no historical documents were ever recorded to indicate what happened to it. Mainstream historians simply consider it to be a case of mistaken identity. Nevertheless, it is a peculiar riddle in the history that is likely to be debated and discussed in the future. Although this is an inherently Irish legend, the legend of High Brazil has circulated Earth and has been a topic of discussion for centuries. And in comparison to ancient Greece's lost Atlantis, High Brazil is in fact far more documented with many more first-person accounts on record. There are many myths shrouding this fantasy island. Some say High Brazil is the home of the gods of Irish folklore. Others say it is some utopian, advanced civilization run by monks and priests who possess ancient knowledge and live in paradise. Now, art and literature. Leaving the, de the debate about the island's existence aside, the fascinating history of the island stands on its own. The legend of High Brazil has such a strong presence in the oral tradition and folklore of Ireland that many artistic manifestations tried to reproduce this environment of beauty and happiness. Poets, musicians, painters, and writers used their creativity to reconstruct, in one way or another, what could not be reached in a real world. Art became the best portal to get to High Brazil. Among all forms of representation of the legend of this island, it was in literature that High Brazil found its true expression. There are many references to the island in poems, novels, and old manuscripts, including works by famous Irish authors. W.B. Yeats, for example, reproduced Gerald Griffin's poem, High Brazil, The Isle of the Blessed, probably the most famous poem on High Brazil, in his book Fairy and Folk Tales of the Irish Peasantry in 1888. Here's the poem. On the ocean that hollows the rocks where ye dwell, 
A shadowy land has appeared as they tell. Men thought it a region of sunshine and rest, and they called it O Brazil, the Isle of the Blessed. From year unto year, on the ocean's blue rim, the beautiful specter showed lovely and dim. The golden clouds curtained the deep where it lay and looked like an Eden, far away. A peasant who heard of the wonderful tale in the breeze of the Orient loosened his sail. From Ara the Holy he turned to the west, for though Ara was holy, high Brazil was blessed. He heard not the voices that called from the shore. He heard not the rising wind's menacing roar. Home, kindred, and safety he left on that day, and he sped to high Brazil, away, far away. Morn rose on the deep, and that shadowy isle, or the faint rim of the distance reflected its smile. Noon burned on the wave, and that shadowy shore seemed lovely distant and faint as before. Lone evening came down on the, on the wanderer's track, and to Ara again he looked timidly back. Oh, far on the verge of the ocean it lay, yet the Isle of the Blessed was far, far away. Rash dreamer return, O ye winds of the main. Bear him back to his own peaceful Ara again. Rash fool for a vision of fanciful bliss, to barter thy calm life of labor and peace. The warning of reason was spoken in vain. He never revisited Ara again. Night fell on the deep amidst tempest and spray, and he died on the waters, away, far away. On the ocean that hollows the rocks where ye dwell, a shadowy land has appeared as they tell. Men thought it a region of sunshine and rest, and they called it O Brazil, the Isle of Blessed. From year unto year on the ocean's blue rim, the beautiful specter showed lovely and dim. The golden cloud circuit, the deep where it lay, and looked like an Eden, away, far away. Another well-known work is High Brazil, the Isle of the Blessed by Gerald Griffin, who lived from 1803 to 1840. From the Isles of Aaron and the West Continent often appears visible that enchanted island called O Brazil, and an Irish Begara, or the Lesser Aaron, set down in cards of navigation, whether it be real and firm land, kept hidden by special ordinance of God as the terrestrial paradise, or else some illusion of airy clouds appearing on the surface of the sea, or the craft of evil spirits, is more than our judgments can sound out. Another incredible reference is a fascinating medical manuscript that became known as the Book of the Olis, or the Book of the Isle of, Bra of O Brazil, probably from the 15th century and kept today among the rare documents of the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. Written in Irish and Latin, the book is apparently a translation of old medical treatises and lists that, of cures and treatments for several diseases. But the amusing fact about the book is that it was used in the 17th century by a certain Moro Olay, as I've mentioned before, who claimed that he was taken mysteriously in 1668 to the island of Old Brazil, where he received the book and the recommendation not to open it until seven years had passed. After this period, he opened the book and realized his ability to treat all sorts of human illnesses, although he never had any training to do so, and everything was attributed to his journey to High Brazil. For some Irish historians, Moro Olay probably inherited the book from his family, and after some professional misfortunes, started to use it as a way of making a living. The story of High Brazil was also used to reinforce Christian doctrine. This can be found in an extremely rare text, Voyage to O Brazil, or the Submarine Island, giving a brief description of the country and a short account of the customs, manners, government, law, and religion of the inhabitants. The manuscript, written between 1558 and 1603, is the description of a fantastic journey to O Brazil, 
a submarine island that sank off the coast of Ireland below the waters, enclosed in a type of huge bubble. There was a small country, a land of virtue and Christian faith, and happy people. Now, a bit further on the name, origin, and the location of High Brazil. Scholars variously claimed Brazil was a powerful chieftain or an immortal god. The clan Ui Brazil is known to historians to have inhabited Northeast Ireland. According to legend, the great Iron Age chief Brazil mourned his lost daughter who drowned in the river Galmuth near Galway Bay, just east of where the island of Brazil is often placed on old maps. Others note that Brazil was the name given to the Celtic immortal high king of the world, who according to legend held court on the island of eternal happiness, High Brazil. Every seven years during the interregnum, the island is reported to have descended beneath the waves. So, what are we left with with all of this, folks? Well, here's some theories. Belief in the existence of the island of High Brazil may have arisen through these optical illusions that I've talked about before and some of these mirages, which are not so very infrequent as it's generally, you know, supposed by people. Mirages and these sorts of things actually happen a lot more than you would think. Now, some believe that Brazil was actually Baffin Island in Canada, in Newfoundland, or it might not be Newfoundland, but it's uh, off of Canada in the far north. They support their theory by noting that through the years, the notably round, bifurcated island in the North Atlantic shifted to the west as maps became more sophisticated. For example, in later charts, such as Johannes Reut's 1508 map, the first split island to appear to the west of Ireland sits in the Gulf of Greenland. As exploration continued, this island appears to be placed further and further west. Ultimately, they claim, it becomes the mass we know today as Baffin Island. In secondary support for this theory, these historians point to Delorto's early works, which place Brazil in the middle of numerous fortunate islands. Baffin Island is just one of over 90 major islands in the Arctic archipelago of that area. So, again, you know, look, that's, that's one of the leading theories is that people didn't really know what these distances were across the ocean. And if the Vikings or someone else had gone there before and people were just reproducing these maps and didn't actually know the distances that, you know, they might have put High Brazil quite close to Ireland. And as time goes on, they just moved it further and further across the ocean, you know, on the maps. The Faroe Islands, an archipelago situated between the North Atlantic Ocean and the Norwegian Sea, are another endorsed candidate. Interestingly, before the Vikings settled there, hermits from our land of Ireland lived on the islands, according to an Irish monk named Dickiel, who wrote in the early 9th century. There is also another consideration with regard to this phenomenon, which does, has not been sufficiently taken into consideration. We cannot see objects below the horizon, but sometimes, owing to the peculiar state of the atmosphere, the rays of light are so bent that when they reach the eye, they make distant objects visible. For instance, place a coin in a saucer so as to be hidden from observation. Now pour water into that saucer, and though the coin is below the horizon, it becomes at once visible. Now I haven't tried this, folks, but I will. This reflection, usually seen across water, is among sailors known as looming. The objects that loom are magnified vertically and seem unnaturally near. Snowden in Wales is thus occasionally seen by pilots in Dublin Bay though it's over 100 miles away. The legend could be a story that was passed down through generations from
from the end of the last ice age when the sea levels were lower. For example, the so-called Porcupine Bank, discovered in 1862, appears to have been an island at some point in time. Located about 193 kilometers, or 120 miles west of Ireland, and again, bingo bango, you know, they say it's about 200 miles away, you know, high Brazil, so it's in that region. It is a shoal exposed at extreme low tide, and is where an 1830 chart had Brazil rock located. The bank's highest point is around 200 meters below sea level, and was sunk either due to a catastrophe or rising sea levels. Uh, so that 200 meters is about 650 feet, folks. Some geologists suggest the rising mantle of the Earth's crust around Scotland could have caused adjacent land to push downward under the waves. Now, on that 1674 journey that I mentioned before in the pamphlet that was circulating in and around London, the ancient maps depict high Brazil in the Atlantic Ocean to the west of Ireland, but a voyage between France and Ireland should not go so far west. That makes sense. The location of an island between Ireland and France could be the, the Scillies, but, but the one in the story seems to fit Lambay Island. There have been rabbits on Lambay since at least the late medieval period. The ties of Lambay's rabbits to the nuns, at that time the rabbit taxes were worth 100 shillings a year. That was in from Wikipedia. And it also says in Wikipedia, in the mid-16th century, Chaloner was to inhabit Lambay with a colony of honest men. He was a very active man who worked four mines for silver and copper. During this period, Lambay Castle, a small blockhouse or fort, was built on the western side of the island. The presence of silver mines is consistent with the silver of the story. At times, the population of the island has been very low. Only three people lived on the island in 2014, for example. It could be a tale with some truth to it. So again, you know, you, you hear these tales of hardly, you know, when they landed on the island, there was only the one guy there. There was, you know, he had silver and gold that he gave to them, and there were rabbits. And all of those things line up with this island of Lambay. Now, the, 1640, the 1674 story is also claimed to be a literary invention by Irish author Richard Head. According to Professor Isabel M. Westcott from the University of Swansea in Wales, the, bo the Book of O Brazil is another brilliant fiction carefully constructed by Richard Head, marking a change in the literary style of the time. Another work attributed to Richard Head is The Western Wonder or O Brazil, an enchanted island discovered, London 17, 1674, which presents different accounts of the appearance and disappearance of this mysterious island. The Concord of Classic and Irish tradition is remarkable. In both cases, some, somewhere far away in the Western Ocean, there was a country which passed under various names, and that this was one of the Elysiums of the primitive Irish, as well as of classic writers, is very clear. It appears to have corresponded to the land of the saints of, Irish, of early Irish Christianity, where the souls of the blessed await the day of judgment. Even as the land of the living was to the pagan Irish their happy spirit home, the general traditions of pagan peoples place the point of departure from this world and entrance to the next, always to the west, and the journey lay westward. For instance, in the mythological legend of the adventures of Conla Ruid, and the hero embarks in a curragh made of pearl and glides away to the boundless ocean, watched by his friends with straining and streaming eyes until the skiff disappears in the glow of the great white sun on its voyage westward to the island of the blessed. 
to a land of youth, a land of rest, a land from sorrow free. It lies far off in the golden west, on the verge of the azure sea. The most widely accepted explanation is that early errors on charts and maps continued as cartographers copied other maps. There were a number of mythical or imaginary places that appeared on maps, beginning in the early 14th century. Stephanie Sear, assistant curator in the Norman B. Leventhal Map Center at the Boston Public Library, told Hyperallergenic. In the North Atlantic Ocean, the islands of St. Brennan, St. Brazil, or High Brazil, sorry, Maida and Bus all appear on early maps. Local legends and old folklore spread to merchants and seafarers, and folk stories gave way to accounts of actual sightings of these places, which accounted for their appearance on the maps. After a number of failed attempts at finding islands like High Brazil and disputed reports, these places were eventually removed from the maps. So what she's saying is, as I said in that earlier account, you know, the people at the time were so certain of St. Brendan's voyage and these islands that he claimed that, you know, he had found, people put them on maps and they actually said that they had treaties with these islands, even though no one necessarily had any proof of it. High Brazil lives on. An extremely interesting aspect of this entangled story is the presence of the name Brazil in proper names, place names, and family names in Ireland. In the telephone directory for Trolley County, County Cary, there are found different variations of the surname that would leave any Brazilian very intrigued. Brasil, so B-R-A-S-S-I-L, B-R-A-S-S-I-L-L, Brazil, Brazil, B-A-R-B-R-A-Z-I-L, B-R-A-Z-I-L-L, B-R-A-Z-Z-I-L-L. Even more interesting is to see those names on the front of shops, such as a small grocery called Brasil's Store and Trolley or Brasil's Guest House in Ballyhague. According to the book More Irish Families by Edward Mac Lissett, Brasil or Brazil or even O Brazil are anglicized versions of the Irish surname O Brazil, mainly found in, in counties Wexford or sorry, Waterford and Offaly. The name O Brazil, according to Mac Lysot, already existed in 1308, and the name O Brazil is even older, being recorded in 1285 in County Cork. This leaves no doubt of an Irish history for the name Brazil, totally independent of the South American country. So folks, what are we left with here? Was it collective errors of people copying maps down through the ages? Was it an ancient Celtic overworld, otherworld and uh, an Elysium, a land of youth? Or was it simply mirages and overactive minds fueled by literary materials? Could have these people discovered North America, you know, when they talked about this land far to the west, these these people and a shining dome city and everything else, could have that been America? What of the latest claims that perhaps it is either an interdimensional, underwater, or an invisibility cloak base for creatures not of this world as we understand it? Could it really be a location that time travelers use as a stopping off point in their temporal journeys as some have claimed? Could it have been the result of Celtic Druids' meditative or hallucinatory journeys? Could it all be no more than the wishful and hopeful thoughts of a population scratching out a difficult existence and having faith in the land of milk and honey when they passed away from this mortal coil? Maybe it's the more mundane but just as extraordinary collective memories of people stretching back thousands of years to when the seas were much lower and stretches of the seabed like Dogger Bank and Porcupine Bank were above the waves. No matter what you believe, as always, my job is to present the tale 
and allow you to draw your own conclusions. I would simply point out that oh so often in tales like this, that science and mainstream historians tell us are pure fantasy, a thread of truth, and often much more is later confirmed. Now that you have been in introduced to the fascinating tale of Ireland's Atlantis, there's no turning back. Maybe one day on a particular seven-year cycle, you'll be in the right place at the right time to sight the golden domes of an epic city lost in the mists of time. And as always, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. And that quote is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.